said, let's now turn in our Bibles to the book of Romans. We're still in chapter 1. I am not challenging Lloyd-Jones, Martin Lloyd-Jones, on preaching lots of sermons on Romans. This will be the last sermon on chapter 1. But chapter 1 of Romans is very strategic and very key and very important to the flow of this particular book of the Bible. And we're going to sort of take our time as we will finish chapter 1 today. But I would ask you as we begin in verse, I believe it's 28, um, we will be reading God's word from verses 28 to 32. Hear now the word of the Lord. And since they, that is everybody from verse 18 and on, did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is God's word. Let us pray. Our great God and Father, as we open your word again today, we do so with a sense of awe because this is the means by which you have chosen to speak to us. And your word is truth. And how much we need the truth sometimes is overwhelming. It's so easy for us to be deceived. It's easy for us to hold on to the lies. But we pray today that your Holy Spirit would enable the one who speaks and the one who listens to hear and to welcome and receive the engrafted Word of God, which is able to save our souls. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we look at Romans chapter 1 and have, I'm going to kind of do a big picture view of the chapter before I get to the closing, because the closing doesn't really make sense unless you have read and understood what has come before. But as we know, as we read the Bible in Genesis 1 and 2 in particular, we see that God's plan and desire and hope for our world is to have a world of human flourishing. He made us in his image after his likeness. He gave us work to do in the garden, to till the garden, to cultivate it, to develop culture, to bring culture uh, across the world. It was as if the world was uh, a shapeless void and then God ordered creation and he formed it and he filled it and he gave man work to do. And he told him to fill the earth with uh, the seed of his people, uh, to be fruitful and to multiply. 
and all of those things are wonderful and great. Human flourishing was at the forefront and the heart of God, but in chapter 3, the greatest tragedy that has ever hit the world outside of the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious one, man sinned. And rather than having human flourishing, we have human disintegration. The title of this sermon is Things Fall Apart. When the center doesn't hold, things fall apart. Integrity is one of my favorite words, although I wonder if I have any sometimes. But I love integrity, want to have it. Would love to, it to be a strong virtue in my life by God's grace. But integrity means you got your stuff together. That all parts fit together to make a beautiful, harmonious whole. But disintegration means what? Everything falls apart. When the fall occurred, shalom, that is the peace of God pronounced upon his beautiful world that he made, in which there was no sickness, there was no death, there was no evil other than the presence of the evil one. And so things began to disintegrate after sin. Things fell apart. Vertically, the relationship between God and his creation, his creatures, was violated and broken, and that disintegrated, that completely fell apart, rather than enjoying meeting God in the garden in the cool of the day and enjoying face-to-face -face fellowship and presence with him, they hid themselves in the garden and were afraid and naked, their souls shamed, filled with shame. And so rather than human flourishing, which we had in Genesis 1 and 2, now we have human disintegration. Things falling apart because the center does not hold. Well, what is the center for most people? For most people, the center is self. For most people, the center is me. G.K. Chesterton was once uh, challenged by a newspaper in England to write an article about what's wrong with the world. He got out of his typewriter, took a piece of paper, he typed two words, sent it to the editor. You know what he typed? I am. I am what's wrong with the world. Why? Because it's true. We do not see what we will see when the new heavens and the new earth become a reality in which we participate in bodily existence. We're not going to be floating around for eternity in some sort of ethereal pillar of cloud with angels flapping their wings and singing and playing harps while we eat grapes. We will experience human flourishing again. And the garden, Revelation 21 and 22 tells us, has become a city. That is, culture has been cultivated to where we will continue to see and do things that you've wanted to do all your life. You will be able to do in the new heavens and the new earth forever. But right now, <laughs> we live in a place 
where there is no flourishing. Things fall apart. We had a sense of wholeness. That was disintegrated in the garden. Um, sin is the vandalizing of sh shalom. Things right now in our world are not the way they're supposed to be. They're not the way God made them. Everything is broken. Everything is out of joint. And Paul even tells us in Romans 8 that creation itself groans. It groans in agony, waiting for the revelation of the children of God. And so I wanted to talk about four things today and hopefully end with a hopeful note uh, because these are sad. Uh, and there are four things that I want to talk about. First, there's intellectual confusion and frustration. Second, um, emotional confusion and frustrations. Third, bondages and addictions. And finally, a decay of personal and corporate life because things hold apart, fall apart. The center doesn't hold unless the center of your being is the Lord Jesus Christ. That's our only hope. And so saying it that, we've already looked at the vertical implications in verses 18 and following, but today we're going to focus more on the, what I would call, horizontal uh, ramifications. And so it's important for us to understand that in verse 18, God says, I mean, Paul says something very important. In verse 16, he tells us that God's righteousness is revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ that what sets us right is to have Christ at the center of our existence, for us, us to be looking outside of ourselves and laying hold of him and wearing upon ourselves his perfect robe of righteousness, having our sins forgiven, having the guilt and shame gone. And now we are forever under his favor, but at the very same time, the Bible tells us that the wrath of God will not will be revealed here, but is presently, continuously being revealed every day in his world. Now, what is the wrath of God? Well, the wrath of God makes people nervous, and well, it should. It's not a fun thing. But the wrath of God is an attribute of God. The wrath of God is based on his truth and righteousness, and is directed without favoritism or prejudice to those who wor whose works fall short of his standards. We should put, a pu put aside any kind of stereotypes of wrath as a fiercely burning fire and brimstone. Wrath is the negative judgment of God, his just and true condemnation of those who reject him. God's wrath is all the more awesome in being dispassionate. It is not fitful. It is not angry. It is not like a sputtering fire over a raging inferno. The wrath of God will ultimately be revealed at the end of history and on Judgment Day, but it is presently being revealed now. How do we know it's being revealed now? Well, people have done something that is awful. Instead of retaining the knowledge of God that God makes known to us through the media of creation, his eternal nature, his divine nature, attributes that we can discern from looking at creation, the world he has made, 
every single person knows beyond a shadow of doubt that there is a God. That tells me atheists don't have integrity, do they? They're lying. They may be deceived and think they're not lying. I don't hate atheists. But I will tell you this, they're lying. They are doing something that's very wicked along with every other person that is not in a right relationship with God. Paul tells us in this passage that they are suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. They are choking it. They are stifling it. They are holding it down. They are moving it to a place in their consciousness where it has no influence over them, where they don't have to think about it. Because I want to tell you, if I want to live my life on my terms, the way I want to live it, make my own rules, live the way I want to live, do it when and with whom and forever just like I want to, I would be fine if there was no God. But that's not the reality. They know. They have seen it clearly. That's what the Bible says. And they're stifling it by doing very unrighteous things. And so we see a number of times in this passage where God seems to hand people over. It is called um, a, a, a judicial abandonment in the Bible. God hands people over to their desires as they attempt to destroy themselves. And this handing over that God does is judgment. It is an act of judgment, not blessing. When God gives people over to lust and passions that will ultimately, ultimately destroy themselves. And so that's what this passage is saying before us. And it's a little difficult because of that reason. God's wrath is being revealed, unrighteous responses to what can be known about God, we have seen, and how God's wrath is being revealed by abandonment of those who re reject him and respond to him in negative ways by unbelief. And so, as we get going, I, today I wanted to look particularly at verse 21 because I think that's a very important place in the argument. So look with me in Romans chapter 1 and verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him as God, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And so Paul begins to outline the steps by which people become idolatrous or idolaters, picking up the theme of knowing God and using uh, that though they knew God, he tells us what exactly godliness, ungodliness looks like or godlessness. Although every race and culture have had some sense of God's eternal power and divine nature, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Even the daily experience of God's providential care did not move people to praise him, the source of all good things they enjoyed, and to say thank you for all the benefits you've given me. Paul later declares that they did not think it worthwhile to even acknowledge God, to have God in their knowledge 
and sovereign power, but not taking uh, or the existence and being aware of God's existence and sovereign power, but not taking knowledge into account every day. To glorify God, which is what we were created for, to glorify him as God means to give God praise and honor that is due him. And it's important to understand that God means to us to acknowledge and honor him, and he has revealed himself for that purpose. And so rather than doing that, man switched gods. They rejected the true God. And so... God tells us that their minds became futile and their hearts were darkened, and that is the state into which humans are placed when they fail to honor God as God. Our rejection of God causes God to leave us to ourselves, and our thinking became futile, and our hearts were darkened, and we became fools or foolish in our lifestyle. And so one of the first results of rejecting God is to be given over to what he calls here futile thinking. That tells me that a person who has not been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, a person who has not seen the goodness and grace of God in the person of Jesus Christ, lives a life in which they do not think right. Their thinking has been damaged by their own sinfulness. They do not get it. They do not see the truth. I had a friend one time who I took home. Uh, my father did not suffer fools gladly. And so we were in the den, and it was close to Thanksgiving. I think it was like the Sunday before Thanksgiving. And while I was out of the room, my friend was trying to conjure up some kind of conversation with my dad. And my dad could be an intimidating man. And they were discussing things. And so my friend says, well, I guess you're getting ready for Thanksgiving. My father said, yeah, we sure are. And he looked at my dad and says, you know, Thanksgiving's on Thursday this year. So he left the room to go do something else. My dad looked at me and pulled me over by his chair, and he said, that boy ain't right. He's just not right. That really happened. But it's worse than that. We, when we abandon God, he gives us over to darkness. And darkness is intellectual, it's emotional, it's darkness pervading our faculties in every way. We cannot see the light because we are in darkness. We cannot see the truth because we're living a lie. In a minute, I'll tell you, we're believing the big lie. My older brother was blind, at, uh, totally blind at age 23. He had as I said earlier, very rare disease. And uh, tumors could pop up anywhere, and it started in his eyes. And he lost both of them. But my brother had a pathway in my mom's and dad's house, house that he had marked out to get around. And my brother could not see light or darkness. That is total blindness. Uh, I asked him what it's like to be blind. He said, 
You remember how when the television used to go off the air and everything was gray and black and fuzzy? He said, that's what it looks like to me. He said, either eyes open or eyes closed, that's what blindness is like. I can't see anything. And so wh what would inevitably happen is if we had someone come over to our house to stay and they were not well trained in how to act around blind people, somebody would inevitably move an ottoman, a chair, or something, and I would hear my brother getting up in the night, and then all, all of a sudden I'd hear him hit the floor because he tripped over to something, and the first words out of his mouth were what? You're thinking profanity, but no. Who moved the stool? Because it caused him to fall down, hit himself on ground. Why? Because he lived in darkness. He couldn't see walking with him down the sidewalk one day he had a cane and so I usually he usually held my elbow for some reason it was a strange thing and he used his cane of course to walk he had a tennis ball on the end of his cane and so we walked up and all of a sudden he took this cane and swang it and hit a light pole and I said uh, what'd you do that for he said well I knew it was there he said when you're walking you can hear dead spots. I said, but what if it was a person? He said, well, they don't give off the same vibe as a telephone pole. <laughs> I said, have you ever hit a person? He said, I'm not saying. But, <laughs> but he couldn't see. And that is where people are who've not been enlightened by the Holy Spirit, who have not had the lights turn on, whereas, as Paul mentions in 2 Corinthians, as God shined the light into the darkness and brought about creation, so God shines the lights into our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So people lived in darkness. And they operate their whole lives in darkness. I remember when God saved me, I was 19 years of age. I wasn't looking for him. I didn't want him in my life. I wanted to get away from my family, get away from religion, get away from all of that. And God had the audacity to save me and turn the lights on. And I had new life. And I be it was almost like I had been living in one dimension <laughs> And then all of a sudden, there was another whole dimension that I was not aware of. And I started saying, now I know why all those people are happy to be in church. Because I never was. Church bored me to tears. Could not wait to get out. I still hold resentment. Got to let it go. Toward my pastor, the night the Beatles debuted on the Ed Sullivan Show, he promised to get us out in time to go watch that. He did not. So that's how you think when you're in darkness. And that's exactly what he's saying here. We don't live to glorify God. It's a comprehensive term. Without understanding, the heart's refusal to glorify God and gives him, give him thanks uh, causes our emotions, our thoughts, our will, and human personalities, the ability to think and act appropriately is disabled or impaired when we fail to acknowledge the reality of God in our lives at the very center of every person where the knowledge of God uh, 
At the very center of every person where the knowledge of God, if it is to have any positive effects, must be embraced, there has a, been a settled darkness, a darkness that only the light of the gospel can penetrate. When the mind is renewed through belief in the gospel, it becomes possible to discern and do that which is good and pleasing in the perfect will of God. You remember when Jesus hung on the cross. And he went through three hours of what? Darkness. Think about that. Three hours of darkness upon which God judged his son for our sin, that is, those of us who believe. And the truth and reality is the reason you can see and the reason you and I have light in our lives is because Jesus went to the cross and took our darkness from us by dying, abandoned by the Father, as it were. His Father turned his face aside from his Son. There was no longer the joy of fellowship there, and he suffered three hours of darkness so that you and I can see reality and see and acknowledge the presence of God. Uh, wisdom was something that was prized by every generation, and wisdom is really thinking God's thoughts after him. And so judgment came. People who fail to acknowledge God yet claim to be wise becomes fools. Psalm 14, the fool has said in his heart, and some translations say there is no God, I don't take that translation. I believe the text says, the fool says in his heart, no, God. He says, no, I will not have anything to do with you. And so, uh, the seriousness of idolatry becomes an issue. And I don't, I've spent time talking about this. don't want to spend a lot of time talking about it. But rather than worshiping, and serving the Creator, we did an exchange. Fallen people exchange that for other gods. And I'm not talking about so much uh, emblems here of a god or a statue or a tree or whatever, an object, but rather idols of the heart. In other words, other things became to me gods that I serve as a person. And it leads to a life of bondage and corruption. And that's where we're looking today. And uh, I know that I spoke a great deal last week on the subject of homosexuality, same-sex sin, which the Bible is not ambiguous about. It doesn't apologize for. It calls it what it is rebellion against the natural order that God has created and a person who does that in any kind of sexual sin it, it's not just homosexual or lesbian or other uh, what might be called deviant forms of uh, relationships but also uh, premarital sex also adultery all of those are a distortion of the gift God has given us, which is sexuality. Now, I said last week, and I believe last week, that those sins in one sense are no worse than any other, 
But in another sense, if you were to ask me, why does Paul highlight those when he starts talking about idolatry? Why does he highlight those particular sins? He does that rather than speak of other sins because first it was a reality in the Roman culture. Uh, almost every Caesar of Rome practiced either pederasty or had a homosexual lover live in that really replaced his wife. It was just a reality in life in uh, Rome and its culture. But I think the reason Paul does that is because sexual sin is different than other kinds of sin by consequence. And uh, the reason I say that is I want to ask, if you want to turn there to look, look with me in um, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verses 18 through 20. First, let's go to verse 9 of 2 Corinthians 6. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexual immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now just stop right there. So they won't inherit the kingdom of God if they continue in that lifestyle and never repent of it, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. But look at verse 11. And such were some of you. There's the hope. You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Now look down at verse 18. Paul says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. So Paul says, flee from fornication. And fornication is a uh, sort of a rubric term under which comes all deviant se uh, sexual immorality. It's the Greek word porneo, from which we get the word pornography, which is also sexual deviancy. So when he tells them in the context, he means, generally speaking, sexual intercourse with prostitutes most likely temple prostitutes. But in the broader passage, the word pornea means other kinds of unlawful sexual expression mentioned whether adultery or homosexuality to which we may add premarital sex. There's a special quality to end sexual sin. Every other sin, Paul says, is outside the body. The Corinthians are quite wrong that the stomach is for food and the food is for the stomach does not mean that the genitalia are for sex and sex is for geni genitals. Having a stomach indeed points to the need to eat, but having organs such as these does not itself imply the necessity for sexual gratification. Paul teaches that the man or woman who fornicates sins against his or her own body or person. Thus he establishes by another question introduced by, do you not know 
What they do not know, but should know, is that one's body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, that is, a believer. The body is not merely flesh, organs, and bones, but the total person, including mind, memory, conscience, and emotions. The body of the Christian believer, so understood, is a sacred shrine, as it were, indwelt by the Spirit of God. The body, that body, is meant for union with the Lord, and with whom each Christian is one spirit. To break that spiritual union by fornicating is to sin against oneself, one's own body. You are not your own, Paul says. You have been bought for a price. So if you ask me if this sin is worse than other sins, not in the sense of it being against God and being culpable, but does it have greater consequences? I would say yes, it does. Instead of human flourishing, you experience disintegration when you step into that world. I know this is hard stuff to hear, especially given our day and time and our culture, because some of you know people who are doing those things as a regular lifestyle, and you love them. But is it better to, to tell someone, it, you know, it's all right, it's fine for me, people can do what they want to do, consenting adults can do whatever they want to do, whenever they want to do it. That's not love. That is not love. Love cares more than that. If you know the truth of what the Bible teaches, you are responsible at the appropriate time in the appropriate way to confront people who are doing that because they are destroying themselves. Don't you care? Don't you care? They are destroying themselves. It's not a neutral issue. It is an issue that is so destructive to people. And God's handing people over to this is not ultimately so they will be destroyed, but that they will come to themselves in the process of destroying themselves and turn to him and cry out for mercy. Everywhere the Bible says God hands people over, it doesn't mean he's written them off and there's no hope and no chance forever for these people. But what it does mean is that God cares. He desires the repentance of all people. And so, we care. So he hands people over to a lifestyle that is destructive. The idea of handing over was a technical expression for the police or courts in turning someone over to official custody for the purpose of punishment. Paul does not simply mean God withholds his help, which could have prevented judgment from falling, but as part of his response to human sin, God initiates and maintains a process of judgment in the world he created, expressing his wrath, showing the practical consequences of refusing, refusing, as it were, to acknowledge him. Like a judge who hands over a prisoner to the punishment his crime earned, God hands over the sinner to the terrible cycle of ever-increasing sin. It may be that God permits people to go their own way in order that they might at last learn from their consequential wretchedness to hate the futility of a life turned away from the truth of God. But punishment 
rather than reformation is the purpose here it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of uh, the living God because he is a consuming fire now people turn to all kinds of uncleanness and impurity they turn to a distorted view of God that brings a distorted view of human beings made in the image of God sexual immorality and idolatry are closely linked in paganism and his fundamental thesis is that their alienation from God brings practical everyday expressions of God's wrath sexual immorality and abusive human relationships of every kind are the result of that alienation and so why is it verse 25 tells us and just look at verse 25 uh, in, back in Romans chapter 1 awfully quiet in here should be perhaps because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever who believed the lie who turned and believed the lie Adam and Eve if you will remember when Satan came and tempted Eve in the Garden of Eden, he uh, challenged Eve and uh, asked her why she wouldn't partake of the fruit. He began to question God's Word. That's where it always starts, questioning God's Word. And so Eve says, well, we can eat of all the trees and the fruit of the garden, but the one in the middle of the garden... The tree of the knowledge of good and evil we must not eat, but she adds to it. She does a little editorial work. She says, or even touch it, lest we die. That's almost an open door of saying, yeah, that's pretty strict, Satan. I agree with you. I don't get it. Why? And Satan says, did God really say you would die? Did he really say that? Questioning, he says, God knows that in the day you eat, you will become as God. You will be the center of your own existence. You don't have to live for him. You can live for yourself. And you can determine for yourself what is good and what is evil. And that's where we are as a culture. Self-determination of what's good and evil. Not taking God's word on it, but our own thoughts. And so the woman saw that the food was good, pleasant to the eyes. She took it. She ate it. She gave some to Adam. Adam ate it. And they died. Not physically, but spiritually. People believe the big lie. That God, rather than creating a world for human flourishing, filled with worshipers who love him and are grateful toward him, they believe the big lie that God doesn't really love you. God sees you as a rival. God is a despot on the throne denying you your righteous place. You can't actualize yourself under God's authority, under his power. Therefore, you become your own God. You look at our culture right now. It's always been this way, but it seems to be especially pronounced today. Because when we get down to verse 32, Paul says, not even do people uh, 
know that people behave this way, but they applaud it. You know what this month is, don't you? It's Pride Month, is it not? Isn't that a celebration of that particular thing? Boy, the Bible's insightful, isn't it? It says people applaud it, they glory in it. Why? Because they can't see the truth. Because they're living in darkness. Because their hearts are hard and resistant to God himself. And so, a lie was fundamental to the primordial desire of humans to be like God and to find to define evil and good for themselves. The worship of images and idols is a particular consequence of rejecting the truth about God as our good-willed creator. And so, we're coming down to the closure. In verses 26 to 27, God is described again as having delivered people over to judgment, and he does so. And that is to degrading pass, uh, passions. In other words, people who today claim that I'm liberated. I'm liberated sexually. I'm liberated ethically. I'm liberated in every way. No, you're not. Not according to the Bible. You're in bondage. You're not free. You can't stop doing it. You're in bondage. You're in bondage. You're addicted. Addiction is a pretty good model of what it's like to be enthralled by sin or to be uh, to have a um, sin you can't overcome that you struggle with um, same kind of dynamic but people are destroying themselves destroying them I, I, I can remember visiting a man in the hospital one time and he had lung cancer of the worst kind and uh, he had been smoking ever since he was five years old, I think, rolling his own. And then he graduated to filterless camel cigarettes, which some of you have never heard of, but believe me, they're nasty. So I go to see him in the hospital, and lo and behold, he's smoking, dying of cancer, and the smoke's coming out of his trach hole. And I'm looking at the man. And I'm saying, what is wrong with this picture? Can you not stop? And the truth is, no. Without intervention, without help. But God hands people over to a depraved mind, a debased mind. He lets you go. He takes his hand off of you and lets you go. And that's where you'll end up utterly destroying yourself and those who love you are wounded by that. And yet, as far as I'm aware of, people still do it. And I'm not saying I don't struggle with sin too. I do. I do. But God tells us. He gives us a what's called a vice list in verses 28 to 32. And this is where we'll close on this particular message. And there's nothing really strongly unique about this list, this catalog of moral chaos. Two things God requires of us, the scriptures tell us, to love him with all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And Romans 1 depicts the reality of the inability of people to do that. And what Paul is doing, why is Paul sharing all this 
information because people will not value or see the beauty of or rejoice over or get excited by the gospel until they see the plight of their souls that they need to be rescued, that they cannot save themselves. They don't even want to save themselves. And so Paul is painting this picture of the pagans, and all along the Jews, who were religious, are sitting in the back high-fiving each other and saying, Thank God, Paul, you've seen the light on all these Gentile pagans. Well, just wait for chapter 2. Because then he's going to get up in the business of religious people. And it's just as bad, just as wicked. But here, Paul is painting this picture. And you look at the sins, and it's just a catalog of human breakdown, relational breakdown, um, all kinds of just evil. First four terms are general in scope, suggesting that people are totally controlled by these pursuits unrighteousness, evil, greed, and wickedness, breaking with traditional patterns of four. Paul introduces five more with the adjective full, that is full and overflowing, precisely the diversity of behavior he has in mind. Then he talks about character types, gossip and slanderers who seek to destroy another's uh, reputation by misrepresentation. What do you think the Internet has become? And Twitter has become a way to destroy people. Gossip is lies. Slander is truth with an, an intention to hurt someone. So with all of that said, he continues. And it's terrible. It's just a terrible, ugly thing. The final set of four all begin with the same letter in Greek, identifying qualities people lack, undiscerning, senseless, Unloving, unmerciful. We have a total social pathology that is oriented not to the character flaws of individuals or group, but to the collective experience of the human race since the corruption of creation viewed in the radical light shed by the gospel. This catalog undercuts the most sweeping manner and potential claim of individual groups or national exceptionalism. The final description is God has delivered over to a corrupt mind so that they do what is not right. People have a knowledge of God that they will not allow to influence their thinking and behavior. This knowledge of God's just sentence, that people who practice such things deserve to die, therefore um, people not only advocate that lifestyle, but literally applaud it. The problem of evil demands answers, and the key obstacle to belief in God for many people is the problem of evil, but we truly face the problem of evil in this passage as this passage exposes it, and we will see the need for the solution that God has provided, the gospel of Jesus Christ. The issue is humanity's unwillingness to acknowledge their creator and to live in a way that honors his character and intentions. People prefer to be wise in their own eyes and to pursue godless and unrighteous patterns of thinking and behavior. Idolatry and sexual immorality are two particular consequences in rejecting what can be known about God from the created order. 
But Paul's concluding list identifies many ways human life is affected by a refusal to acknowledge God. A Christian assessment of moral and social evils that characterizes human life must include this theological perspective. The justice of God's wrath needs to be faced. It must be faced. And as he abandons humanity to the consequences of our sin, our present experience of God's judgment anticipates but does not replace the ultimate day of God's wrath. It functions as a warning of final judgment, as a stimulus to seek reconciliation with God. Convincing people of the rightness of God's present and future judgment against sin is an important preliminary step to proclaiming and explaining the saving righteousness of God. Why do people take the gospel so lightly? Because they don't think they need it. They really don't think they need a Savior who came and lived the life they should have lived but could not and would not, who died the death they should have died and did so, absorbing in his body the wrath of God that should have fallen upon them. Jesus will either be your Savior or he'll be your judge. Those are the two things Scripture presents clearly. But why do people not get excited? Why is the gospel not good news? Because we can't see the darkness we're in. We're in the darkness. We can't see it. We need light, but we need to see. When you look at the horror of culture, it is a reflection of our fallen hearts apart from the grace of God. And so rather than cursing the darkness we see, we need to recognize our responsibility is to shine the light of the gospel. We are to be salt and light in this dying culture. But the reason why people don't value Jesus and don't value the gospel is they don't see the pathway they're on and how destructive it is. God, have mercy and show them. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, it's a, it's a tough text because it doesn't mince words. It doesn't play nice. It's just the truth. And the truth cuts. The truth exposes. We cannot be sham fools before you and get away with it. We will never win, at any, win over you at anything. We are totally backed up into a corner by what you've shown us today. But I pray that it would create in us a desire to turn from a life that will utterly destroy us and turn to Christ and run to him. And he will run to us as we repent and as we are taken up into his arms and welcomed into the kingdom of our God. Now, Father, as we continue to worship, may we give us people who've seen the light and who are grateful and worship and adore our Lord Jesus, and we pray in his name. Amen.